The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer, and he was a businessman in Chicago, where he lived with his wife Anna and his five children. Horatio and Anna were not strangers to tears and tragedy. Their young son died with pneumonia in 1871, and in that same year, much of their business was lost in the Great Chicago Fire. But in God's mercy and in his kindness, he allowed the business to flourish once again. On November 21st, 1873, the French ocean liner Ville de Havre was crossing the Atlantic from the U.S. to Europe with 313 passengers on board. Among the passengers were Horatio's wife and their four daughters. Although Horatio had planned to go with his family, he found it necessary to stay back in Chicago to deal with a problem that came up with the business. He told his wife that he would join her and their children in a few days on a different ship. About four days into the trip across the Atlantic, the Ville de Havre collided with a powerful iron-hulled Scottish ship, the Loch Urn. Suddenly, all of those on board were in grave danger. Anna hurriedly brought her four children to the deck. She knelt there with Annie, Margaret Lee, Bessie, and Tanetta, and prayed that God would spare them if it would be his will, or to make them willing to endure whatever waited for them. Within approximately 12 minutes, the ship slipped beneath the dark waters of the Atlantic, carrying with it 226 of the passengers, including Horatio's four daughters. A sailor rowing a small boat over the spot where the ship went down spotted a woman floating on a piece of the wreckage. It was Anna, still alive. He pulled her into the boat and they were picked up by another larger vessel. And nine days later, that vessel landed them in Cardiff, Wales. From there, she wired her husband a message which began, Saved alone, what shall I do? Horatio later framed the telegram and he placed it in his office. Another of the ship's survivors, Pastor Weiss, later recalled Anna saying, God gave me four daughters. Now they've been taken from me. Someday I will understand why. Horatio booked a spot on the next available ship and left to join his grieving wife. With the ship about four days out, the captain called Horatio to his cabin and told him they were over the place where his children went down. According to Bertha Spafford Vester, a daughter born after the tragedy, Spafford wrote these words while crossing the very spot that his daughters died. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Do you ever have those moments in life where you just stop and say, why? Why, God? Do you ever have those moments where you think, maybe God missed something? Maybe there's, there's something that God is missing in this story, or maybe God has forgotten about me, and that's why these things are happening. Do you find yourself in situations that you just don't understand? 
Maybe a terrible loss, someone you love, a child, a parent, a friend. Maybe the loss of a career, years of hard work that feel as though they're wasted away. Maybe everything has come crashing down around you. And you're left in the middle of the chaos saying, God, what in the world are you doing? James offers us hope. He offers us encouragement. James chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to look at one verse this morning. And James writes this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for where he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. If the question were, be, were to be posed, who wants to be like Jesus, you probably would at least know how you should answer. Well, yeah, I, I want to be like Jesus. But what if the question was posed, who wants more trials in their life? Most of us would be far less likely to raise our hands. And yet we see in James that these two things go together, that God uses trials to make us more like his son. And so far, James has been building a case for us. He's he's not been trying to argue that we should enjoy trials, but simply that we need to understand them in the right way. He began explaining by explaining that trials help us to mature in the first couple verses of this chapter. Then he explained that wisdom is needed in order to navigate the trials that we experience. Then he presented a case study of a particular kind of trial that we might be able to relate to by contrasting two socioeconomic positions. And now in verse 12, James is bringing this argument to its climax. It's, he's pointing us to something far bigger than the here and now. He's pointing us to the eternal. James is reminding us that what we experience in this life pales in comparison to what eternity will bring us. This is not unlike what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 through 18. Look at Paul's words. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is reminding us that our present circumstances, the things that we can see and feel, our emotions, our pain, our happiness, it's all temporary. And it will all fade away. And what will last forever is the glory of eternity that we experience in the presence of Christ. Paul is reminding us, stop looking at what's right in front of you and look to eternity. Stop thinking about things as the here and now, what you experience, the pain, the emotions, the circumstances that you're in. Look beyond them to something far bigger, something far greater. So James, like Paul, is reminding us to hold fast to the hope that we have in Christ. To not let our trials draw us away from Christ, but allow them to strengthen our faith. Allow them to remind us of our need for Christ in our lives. Allow them to force you to lean desperately into the arms of Jesus. 
So James begins with the word blessed. This would make this statement a beatitude. Remember, Jesus gave us the Beatitudes, what what it truly means to be blessed or to be happy. But I don't want us to miss the significance and the depth of this word that James is using because I don't think the word blessed that we have in our English translation does justice to what James is trying to get across to us. It's not happiness as we know it. It's more than that. It's not happiness that's based on our circumstances. The word happiness comes from the root word happenings, which means that we're happy when things in life are going well, but when things don't go well, we're not so happy. Our moods change depending on what's happening in our lives. And the word that James is using here is bigger than that. The word James is using here should be better defined as favor. Those that experience God's blessings are not always happy. Our emotional state may and will vary with the different circumstances of life, but we can be assured that whatever those circumstances, if we endure them with faith and commitment to God, we will be blessed recipients of God's favor. That's what James is getting across. The word that he uses there is not blessed in the sense that we know it. The word that he's using there is experiencing God's favor. Blessedness in the New Testament always denotes an inner quality of life, not an external happiness that we receive from favorable conditions. It is a joy and a happiness that we experience internally that is not dependent upon our external circumstances. Blessedness is something that we experience within us. God's favor is something that we experience within us. And it's not always so evident in the external. Blessedness points to the joy that the believer begins to experience in life, even amid adverse outward circumstances. And it's full bliss only being realized in eternity. James tells us that blessedness is is not being free from trials, nor is it the fact that one is subject to trials. Blessedness results when someone remains steadfast under the trying ordeal until it has ended. The present tense of steadfast implies that pressures and problems exist right now. And they should be expected in the lives of the believers. It's the characteristic of steadfastness that is the sign of genuine faith and the sign of, of one who is blessed. There's a difference between the trials that James refers to in verse two and the trial in verse 12 that we need to understand. In verse two, the trials that he uses is plural, which tells us the the variety of trials that you and I will experience, that we will go through life and we will experience different trials and some will be harder to deal with than others, but there will be trials throughout life nonetheless. But when in verse 12, he uses the singular form of the word trial, which points to the general characteristic of a trial as a feature of our present human experience, that life is one great trial. That is, it is a test made up of a variety of trials. 
And so when James speaks to us, he's not just saying, hold steadfast in the present trial that you are dealing with, whether it's persecution or suffering or pain, emotional hurt. He's not just talking about the present one that you are experiencing, but he's, he's saying remain steadfast in your life, whatever life brings, endure. Remain steadfast. When we have endured life and have remained faithful and steadfast, we will receive, we will receive the promise reward of endurance. The Greek adjective, the chemos, which is translated, has stood the test, was used when they were testing coins and metals to determine if they were genuine. The testing that you and I face will show us whether our faith is genuine or not. It shows where our dependence truly lies. He just got finished telling us in the last few verses that we looked at last week. He's comparing the wealthy and the poor. And he's not saying that having wealth is a bad thing. He said the problem is, is it's more difficult for the wealthy because until they're tested, how will they know where their faith truly lies? It is in the things that they've acquired is their faith truly in Christ. Jesus encounters the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, I want to be your disciple. And so Jesus tests that for a second. And he says, okay, do you give away everything? Give away everything and come be my disciple. And what did the man do? He turned around and walked away. And the way Matthew phrases it is because many possessions had him. He didn't phrase it, he had many possessions. He said many possessions had him. He was owned by something else. Something else controlled him. His dependency was not in Christ. It was in himself. It was in his career. It was in his wealth, his stuff, his own intellect his own abilities. And so when he goes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you, Jesus says, okay, let's see where your dependence truly is. Are the promises we make to God, are they lip service? When we sing the songs and say, my hope is in you alone, are we really telling the truth? Because life will give us trials and we will be tested. The question is, will we endure? Will we receive the crown of life? In the Septuagint, the word crown, Stephanos, was a symbol of special honor, representing happiness and prosperity or a royal headpiece that was worn by kings. And James's point is to encourage the church to endure trials faithfully so that we might receive the reward that God has promised. And so if crown is used to refer to the idea of reward, then the word life that follows indicates what the reward is, that we truly experience life, life abundantly, life eternally. But who is given this reward of life. 
How can this reward be earned? Ultimately, the reward cannot be earned. It is given by God to those who love him. So the blessed man is then the one who ultimately has a continuous love for God. Who finds himself continuously leaning into Christ and not himself whose hope and salvation is not found in the things that he's accumulated for himself, his stuff, his family, his career, his reputation, but his hope and his salvation is found in the person and work of Christ alone. And so as we look at this verse, we need to wrap our minds around the word blessed because we use this word a lot. And we use it to talk about the external things, that God has blessed me with this. God has blessed me with a healthy family. He's blessed us with healthy children. He's blessed us with a great job and, and a nice home. And, and, and we get to eat three meals a day, that God has blessed us. And we use this word a lot, but what does it really mean? What is James trying to communicate to us? I don't think we grasp the weight of the word. And it can be a dangerous word if you think about it because oftentimes the things that we think we're blessed with are really curses. Because how does the world deceive us into thinking that everything is okay? Look what Jesus describes as the blessed ones in Matthew 5, 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus didn't say, Blessed are the healthy or the wealthy. Blessed are the career-driven. He didn't say blessed are the perfect ones or the ones that have it all together. He said blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, the peacemakers, the persecuted. So what we understand is blessing may be far different than what the scriptures had in mind. How do you think about blessings in your life? What are the things in your life that you feel God has blessed you with and how are you holding on to those things? Are you holding on to those things with open hands and saying, God, you've given me this to steward this, but it's yours. And whatever you wanna do with it, you choose. Whether it's my money or my career or my children. Do we hold out these things that we call blessings 
and say, God, they're yours, or do we hold them with a tight fist and say, you can't have them back? And when we hold these things with a tight fist and our hope and our dependency becomes these things, our identity becomes these things, our joy is found only in these things. These aren't blessings. We can't endure when we hold on to things in our life like this. We can't be steadfast. We can't receive the reward of life if our hope is found in this. Our family My family recently experienced one of the worst tragedies that I think that we will ever endure, certainly have endured to this point. So many of you have been so gracious and kind over these past couple of months. The night before Thanksgiving, my little three-month-old My little three-month-old niece died unexpectedly in her sleep. Her name was Rose. Noble calls her Baby Rose. I'll never forget the phone call from my mom that night in the midst of the chaos, and I could hear it all playing out in the background. She called me, and she just asked me to pray. She says, Rose is gone. And that's all she could get out. And I remember getting in my car that night. It was about 9.30 that night, and I just got in the car just to drive, and I ended up in the parking lot here. And I remember talking to God out loud. And I remember the things that I said. I said, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? This is not what Brittany and Chris need in their life right now. This is not going to bring them closer to you. This is only going to push them away. And I remember in those moments beginning to doubt God's sovereignty. And I began to question if you really knew what he was doing. That maybe he missed something. This will certainly be one of the most difficult things that my sister and her husband will ever endure, but I'm watching them endure. They asked me to to do the funeral and I had no clue what to say. We had to wait almost 10 days before we could do the funeral and I remember calling Jack the night before telling him, I don't know what to say, I don't have the words. What, What do you say? And he reminded me, he said, Josh, focus on the eternal not the temporary. 
And Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As the pastor in the family, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. And I certainly didn't know how to mourn. And I remembered this verse that Jesus mourns with us. That we experience painful, devastating things in life. And James is not telling us that we can't mourn. He's not telling us that we can't hurt. Jesus mourns with us. But James reminds us through the mourning, through the pain, endure. And when you endure, you will see God's faithfulness. He will walk through those trials with you. And when you see God's faithfulness, you get a very tiny glimpse of what eternity will be like. My my sister and her husband are at the beginning of a very difficult journey in their lives. As difficult as this, this was for our family, I cannot imagine the pain that they are enduring right now. But from the beginning, they have leaned into Christ. They have leaned into God's people and they've leaned into one another. They wanted her funeral to be a moment to celebrate her short life, but mostly to be a time of celebrating our hope in Christ. And at the most difficult moment of their lives, their souls did not die with their daughter, but they fixed their eyes on the giver of life, the author and the perfecter of life. At a time where most of us would turn our back and run and shake our fists at God and say, you don't know what you're doing. They fixed their eyes on their king. And they said, we don't understand. But we know that you are faithful. And their hope was not found in their little baby girl. They did not hold on to her with a closed fist. And in the midst of it all, we see ourselves changing. We aren't taking for granted the things that we used to. I've watched my dad spend much of his time walking behind his grandkids, picking up the mess behind them. I get my neat freakness, honestly. But now I see my dad being grateful that there's a mess. Because the things that we used to take for granted, we don't. I hold my son much tighter now. I find myself needing to put my phone aside and seize the moments when he wants to play. I'm watching my sister and my brother-in-law see God's faithfulness in some of the most unlikely places. Last week, they were on a business trip in L.A., and they went to walk on the beach and started talking about Rose and her little life and what the future might hold for the two of them. And in the midst of that very conversation, God revealed his compassion and his mercy. And on the beach, just randomly, these roses just washed ashore. 
a sister sent us these pictures. And it was in the midst of that conversation and God reminded them, I am faithful and I know what I'm doing. And the pain and the hurt that you experience right now pale in comparison to the joy that you receive in eternity. Perhaps blessing can be described more like this man who lost his one-year-old son in a, a tragic accident. He said this, the pain of losing a child is like a forest fire that burns everything in its path. The plans you had for your baby, the life you knew, the goals you set for yourself, your understanding of success, everything. But in the wake of the fire's destruction, new green shoots of faith sprout up, new questions and new answers. I know that this pain is leading me in a new direction. It is making me ask questions that I have never wanted to ask and give myself away in a way I have previously refused. I'm reminded again and again of God's words in Isaiah 55, 8, that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And so he writes, what is a blessing? I'm still not sure. I am learning that it looks a lot different from what, what I have always understood a blessing to be. Because of this pain, my life has been redirected. My gaze has been turned and my goals have been changed. Let's look again what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It was through Paul's suffering that he sees more and more the glory of God and what awaits him in eternity. Paul's suffering is not the glory of Christ. Christ's glory is mediated through Paul's suffering. Christ walks with us in the midst of our suffering. So when we choose to see God in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the test, every sunset, every flower, every gentle breeze reminds us that God is faithful and those that endure, we will receive the crown of life. How do you define the blessings in your life? Because the way that I see it in scriptures his blessings are the things that remind us how good God is, how faithful God is, how merciful and compassionate that God is. And it's not always manifesting itself in these external ways that we've always defined blessings to be, but it's sometimes in the pain. It's sometimes in the suffering when we can truly experience God's faithfulness. And when we can endure those things, 
and we can lean more and more into Christ, we know our faith is real. And we can fix our eyes on Jesus, no matter what this life brings. And we can say with absolute assurance that whatever situation we're in, whatever circumstance we face, whatever tragedies and trials and tests that life brings, it is well. It is well with my soul. Let's pray together. God, there are so many things in our life that we don't understand. And some of us in this room have experienced unspeakable pain. hurt that many of us could not fathom. Whether we've lost someone we love dearly or we've been hurt by someone we've trusted or we've brought circumstances into our own life because of bad decisions that we've made or bad decisions that other people have made. God, your word says that you are the one that leads us. You lead us by the still waters. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I pursue the darkness, you are with me. My rod and my staff. And you comfort me. God, point us to the light. Give us the strength to endure because we can't do it on our own. We can endure the pain. We can endure the stress, the hurt, the suffering. God, every one of us left to ourselves would turn away from your son because we find our dependency in our own understanding. God, give us wisdom. Give us faith. Give us the strength to trust you even when we don't understand. And may we truly be able to sing this song with our hands lifted high and our hearts filled with wonder of who you are.